would you push the button that allowed you to love Evanescence unironically? Already pushed, man. Or would you go through the agony of teaching yourself to unironically love it? That is the trouble in Soren right there. It, it is. I'm too emotionally lazy to unironically love Evanescence. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pietra. And I'm Soren Rearguard. You can, as always, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Reader's Karamazov. We are on Twitter at the Reader's K. You can now follow us on Instagram at the Reader's Karamazov for some sweet book pics. And, of course, you can sign up for our Patreon for some bonus episodes. That's patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. We're back this week, and we're talking about our first foray into a work of science fiction today that we're very excited about. This is a book called Trouble on Triton by Samuel Delaney, a very uh, well-known, in some circles at least, a sci-fi author. Maybe not as broadly known to the public as other sci-fi authors, but in his niche, he's very well-known and well-respected. This is a Carl pick, a Carl specialty sci-fi, uh, more so than for e- either of the other two of us. So he's going to be leading us through a lot of the very interesting philosophical problems that are being worked out in this book, In Trouble on Triton. But first, I'm going to give you a very quick summary of the plot, and then I'm going to throw it over to Carl for him to talk a little bit about sci-fi more broadly, and then why he decided to pick this book as a good starting place for thinking about philosophy and science fiction literature. Trouble on Triton is the story of a complex advanced society that exists on Triton, one of the moons of Neptune. It is a society with a very um, distant but connected relationship to Earth, as well as to Mars and to several other moon societies in the, the solar system. The plot centers around the main character, Braun Hellstrom, who is a person who works in metalogics, which is a sort of advanced form of logic, thinking about problems. And at the beginning of the book, we meet Braun, and he is living in a all-male co-op. He's sort of a ladies' man. He's very good-looking. He's a former prostitute, we learn, but he's very unsatisfied romantically. And then he meets an actress named The Spike, who puts on these little theatrical, mini theatrical productions all around Triton. He kind of falls for her. He pursues her. She's at first interested, but then kind of quickly loses interest in him. He then takes a trip to Earth with one of his co-op mates named Sam. He gets caught up in some political intrigue. He also re-meets the spike there and tries to pursue that relationship. She pretty soundly rejects him. He then comes back to Triton. In the middle of all this, there's a war that's erupting between Earth and these moon colonies, and uh, he's been caught up in that a little bit on Earth, and then also again when he gets back to Triton. But in the midst of all this, he, he sort of suddenly has the realization that his unsatisfaction in life and in love stems from the fact that he, he wants to undergo a sex change. And so in the end of the book, he 
is still Bronn, but he becomes a woman surgically and chromosomally is altered and then tries to adjust to this new life, but still finds herself now strangely unsatisfied, I think, at the end of the book. And so the reader is left really uncertain about what's going to happen next and what's going to go forward. Does that sound pretty accurate to you, Carl? The only thing I would add is that part of the ability to the fact that you can change yourself in so many ways in this future society so easily, it's, you know, universally accessible and it's like relatively painless, relatively quick. Bronze changes are not satisfying. And I think that's part of why Delaney's preferred title, it was originally published as Triton and Delaney's preferred title is Trouble on Triton. That's where the, the titular trouble comes from. And this is the sort of hallmark of the utopian science fiction genre. If we are allowed any pleasure or any satisfaction simply through, you know, effectively the push of a button, what about these people like Bronn who remain unsatisfied? And we start the book with, you know, Bronn considers himself a reasonable and happy person. And then the book ends, she's not reasonably happy, right? So why is that the case? Is this productive trouble or unproductive trouble? So why don't you tell us a little bit first, uh, before we dive into some of the particulars of this novel, tell us a little bit about the history of science fiction being used as a space for philosophical thinking, and then in particular, what you think makes Trouble on Triton a very interesting example of that, Carl. Delaney includes you know, two appendixes in this book, and he has numerous um, interesting, some very extensive, very detailed essays on the relevance and the importance, the philosophical importance of science fiction. And one of those things is like, you know, from Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward or Kallenbach's Ecotopia, they're just snippets of where you can just include for a moment a new technology or a new totally different way that things are done. And that can open your mind to a sense of why is it, you know, that doors open in a hinged manner most of the time and not in a circular outward motion, right? This is the thing that Delaney brings up in the end of this book. And just that one sentence description in a science fiction novel or a utopian novel can make you question something that seems kind of totally mundane, like the history of doors or the history of passageways. But it, it sort of gets you really quickly to question, you know, why is it things are that way or understood to be most acceptable when done that way, as opposed to some different way. And it seems, you know, all of a sudden very easy to change something that could be quite small or quite large. I think that's one of the, the beauties of description in science fiction or secondary elements of a plot in a science fiction novel. There's a sense of alienation, no pun intended there, that develops when things are described. What Delaney is very good at in this book, I found, is describing things that would seem very strange to us in their conception as completely normal in this in this world. And th so there's a there's that sense of opening up new realms of possibility by alerting us as readers, these are just things that aren't thought about in this world. Like we might not think about how a door works in our society. Yeah, except the door is like the different ways we think about sexuality or the ways that we assign attraction to ourselves and to other people or or the way that mon money works. Oh, yeah, the way that money works when they go to Earth. Exactly. The all sorts of like normal behaviors that we take for granted every day that Delaney says in the appendix uh, he wants you to start to see. And that sci-fi doesn't explain those 
you know, in like some sort of essayistic manner, but it produces thinking by just having it be part of that world that you have to think about on your own as you read it. Does that sound right, Carl? Yeah, yeah. It gives you a sort of, you know, many worlds interpretation of reality, right? Our, the way our world came about seems entirely precarious in a sense when you read a science fiction novel. So the first instance that I think is really interesting here, and uh, Delaney has said, you know, he's used it in multiple novels, is he wants a two-way off form of prophylactics, right? Or of the pill. So the standard way it is on earth now is, you know, there's mostly birth control for women. There's kind of a birth control pill for men now. I'm not sure how far it's gotten, but the standard sort of expectation is that it's the, in a heterosexual relationship, it's burden is on a woman, right? And Delaney says, you know, in this like advanced society, it would be the case that everyone is given a sort of semi-permanent birth control situation until they decide the two people who engage in you know wanting to have a child decide they want one and then they both take a pill in order for the function to be turned on and something that you know might seem kind of small but you know is certainly scientifically possible totally changes you know social networking and coupling and and family dynamics kind of very quickly escalates into a totally different society could you say something with the way that sci-fi is conceived by Delaney and maybe others who you would know better than I, like Ursula Le Guin or Kim Stanley Robinson or something, as writing against what Kathy Acker in the foreword to this book calls bourgeois realism? Could you talk about how sci-fi is doing something that, in your Carl Bookmarks, after all, you should be able to talk about bourgeois realism? <laughs> how sci-fi is conceiving itself against any other novel that we'd be reading on this podcast? One of the goals of utopian fiction and a lot of science fiction is utopian in some way. Trouble on Triton is in the utopian tradition, even though it calls itself an ambiguous heterotopia. Um, and we'll get to that. But nevertheless, where communism is supposed to end in one of its iterations is, you know, the perpetual revolution of the proletariat, right? Or, or a kind of utopian commune. And there are communes and co-ops in this novel. So it's it's wrestling with those kinds of futures that negate, I guess, if you want to call bourgeois realism, a sense of, in some way, the form of the book seeks to ratify the status quo in some way, either through, you know, like a tragic catharsis that makes us bemoan something that's unfortunate, but nevertheless justifiable in the status quo, or a comedic sort of benevolent outcome that reaffirms the status quo. The thing that's, you know, exciting about utopian novels is that they really try very hard to break with the status quo. Um, and that's why they, you know, they're usually far off in the future or in some distant magical land because the bourgeois order or, you know, the, the normal order conceived of through, you know, capitalism as it exists now, there's a metaphorical and in the book, like a literal departure from that. We sail off to a different place, uh, whether it's Mars or Triton, or her land. And when we get there, the order has been entirely metamorphosed into, you know, a non-monetized, non-capitalistic, non-bourgeois, you know, non-classist society. All those divisions and hierarchies have been switched. And in a lot of utopian fiction, the, the hierarchy is, is trying to be flattened in some way. The sense of competition has tried to be made cooperative in some way. So in those ways, it's like it negates what Acker is calling bourgeois realism. And it seems like what Delaney is interested in doing is he's building this huge world that, as Carl is describing, is totally separate from the strictures of our own, or at least far beyond them. 
but still returning to how the individual is affected in that world or what kind of narrative structure or outcomes can we have for an individual with these different norms and values around them. Does that seem true? Yeah, yeah. The part of what makes it like uh, formally interesting is you are trying very much to break with the kind of Aristotelian plot structure, three-act rise and fall of characters in some way. Instead, we're perhaps on kind of this like, you know, an infinite plane in some way. And one has to really think through what the pursuit of one's desires looks like in this world or what kinds of activities characters engage in to make meaning or is a kind of humanism relevant in a non-capitalistic world or is it a post-humanism or what is the engaging factor for these characters lives Braun kind of circles around these things because you know the job as a metallurgician is like very interesting and worthwhile to Braun for most of the book but then there are like these these flights to earth and the really getting wrapped up with um the spike and micro theater and those are all sort of different kinds of pursuits of meaning and the and the friendship with Lawrence um, I think is really important too Braun seeing himself as like a hero which kind of gets really eviscerated by Delaney throughout the book it's interesting that all of that remains you know a problem of being a subject is still um you know that's inextricable and what do you do with the lonely man the person who values their aloneness can we dive a little bit more into the specifics of the world that delaney is creating here because as i was reading i had the idea in my mind that definitely delaney is in some ways at least attempting to break this sense of bourgeois realism that you brought up friedrich but it also struck me and maybe this is unintentional and ironic, but the world that gets created on Triton does seem to me in some ways at least uh, a reproduction of that, or there are elements of it that are inescapable. It struck me in particular that it felt like sort of a, a libertarian's paradise, right? Where you can just sort of form these almost contractual relationships at will and then break them, right? There's nothing holding you into your particular commune except your choice. And so you do that, and then if you want to, you just get up and leave, right? There's an interesting subplot where Braun keeps demanding an assistant and they try to give him one and then he gets the one fired that is hired because he doesn't like her, right? And so there's this sort of instant termination of job employment there. And then there's, even though there's not money, there's this a very complex seeming credit system that exists. And so even though there is somewhat, it seems to be somewhat of a social welfare system in place, right? Everybody has a right to these basic needs. You then still have this, what, what seems like class stratification, right? Bronze, one of bronze bosses lives out in the very wealthy area of, of the moon, right? There's this sort of social stratification, not based on money, but on social credit. And then most interestingly to me, there's this idea that's really only briefly mentioned and then kind of glossed over. But the idea on Triton is that whoever, if you vote in a political election, like Whoever you vote for then becomes your leader for that amount of time. And so there's like 37 different leaders on Triton and everybody, you know, you can be ruled by different ones and you get that for a time and then you sort of restart over. So it's a very, whatever you want, you can sort of get in this world, but but strangely without much of a sense of social cohesion. So I wonder what you make of that, Carl. How much of that is intentional on Delaney's part and how much of that is maybe just the problems of trying to make a society that's politically wholly other without kind of reproducing some of 
our current issues. I mean, I think a lot of these are just wonderful extensions and like ideas that we have now taken to their logical end to see kind of what would happen and where they would go. One of the things you mentioned is like a, like ranked voting to the nth degree. So right now, you know, people want ranked voting, right? Where you, you don't just vote for one candidate out of two likely winners. What would happen in the runoff? You pick of all the character of all the candidates, you know, your number for each of them. But what if that was like given to you, no matter what, what the outcome of the popular vote was? I don't know if it is libertarian or anarchist exactly. It's kind of like where the political spectrum bends back together and who knows which side you're really on. I mean, one thing that Delaney is doing with that society seems like is tongue in cheek. Like it's almost like an extreme secularity in that you can choose your religion and and go join any religion at any point. And then we're going to form our own sect and do this instead. It's not like a belief that you live under as part of a society. It's just one of many choices. And then that's true of your sexual orientation and your gender, as well as your work situation and any proclivities you might have. It seems like there's just an abundance of choice. And then the undercutting part of that or the funny part of that for our novel is that Braun is someone who says, I don't know what I want, though. So what about someone who doesn't know what they want in this world? What do they do? Delaney seems to be driving us through questions of what it means to be happy and free in a place where you have absolute freedom to make these choices for your happiness. Sometimes you don't know what you actually want. and What does that person do? Trouble is any serious person trying to know what it is they really want. What does it mean to truly want something can be very hard to, you know, existentially square that circle. And I wanted to talk to you about the the lawlessness too, because it's not everywhere on Triton, right, that the laws don't permit. It's the U1 sector that Bron becomes kind of infatuated with and where Bron meets the Spike for the first time and has this like revelatory experience with the Spike's hallucinogenic <laughs> micro theater. And it's, there's been a lot made of that too, which I think is pretty fascinating and it is kind of like delaney's take on the inner city or a place that was really familiar to him the pre-disnified Times square sort of red light district and i think he makes a really interesting point especially in the, the context of you know 21st century ideas of racial justice which is that to call it a kind of lawless place his interesting take is that this was like a 20th century phenomenon in the book and again if you just sort of abstract it a few centuries it's not as though it's like the purge is happening in this place because in fact if you want to enter it you don't want to die right and if people live in it what does it become it becomes a place where the like ideals and values can shift radically and you can come into contact with people of like wildly different persuasions than you and i think that's what makes it kind of a heterotopia and it's precisely the entrance into that space that Delaney's kind of saying is good. That's what allows you to first enter onto this journey of, you know, existential discovery where you don't really know what you desire until you've been into this heterotopia where all desires, there's someone out there who puts each different desire at the top of their hierarchy and you kind of reckon with all of these people at once. And once you've sort of walked a mile amongst them, you can exit and then you have the trouble of figuring out you know what do you truly want i guess that makes sense too when you i mean i have to remember that braun is from mars and the people on these worlds mars and earth are always discussed by the moonies as if they have some hang-ups still right and it seems to be there's 
the connection to these terrestrial worlds means that you're still connected to these histories and these old ways of living and these old notions of race, sex, gender, class, etc. And that people going off into the moon and going literally out of those orbits are then free to, I don't know, question them in some way. And that's maybe the basis for some of the conflict between worlds and moons that's in the background of this book. Just two other things that I think are worthy of noting is, you know, this book is from the 70s, but there's general information, which is a thing that's in a few Delaney books. And it's very like Wikipedia, right? It's like you can look up anyone and figure out, you know, their sort of history very quickly. It's it's accessible to anyone. And then also there are these um, ego boost booths where everyone is the sole owner of the government surveillance that's all around them. Only you have access to the surveillance footage of yourself, but it still is all out there. Again, it's like a very privacy rights, Edward Snowden-y kind of argument at the same time. I think it's just really interesting how real world some of that feels now, given that this was written a long time ago. Should we talk a little bit about the role of logic in this book? Because as we said at the beginning, Braun's job is kind of a funny position as a metalogician. And there's a lot of pretty technical discussion of formal logic in the book. Maybe you, Carl, as someone who's relatively well-versed in formal logic, can lead us through some of these twisty paths. And not just to help us understand what exactly is being discussed in the formal logic, but to think about how then Delaney is folding that discussion back into the action of the novel. One of the things that's important there is to think about, you know, a philosophical definition of complexity, I think is really important for the whole book. And it connects these discussions of logic, which again, as you say, Soren, to the average person, that's, it's going to be pretty technical, pretty quick. Even the the sort of introduction to metalogics, which is the story of hens and eggs and why people get this problem wrong. But then it also connects to um, this other sort of future version of like abstract chess or something called Vlet that we get a lot of description of. And essentially it's just like an extremely complicated game that Bron and Bron's friends play at the communes and co-ops. And what connects them is like, you know, this idea that things are going to get more and more complex in the future. So what does that mean for how we think about our lives and meaning? And what I like about this this framing of metalogs, metalogic uh, Bron's job is that it, it kind of is something that we all do already. And it's just like, it's quite complex, but we don't really give it much thought which is most people most of the time aren't thinking logically in the strict definition of, you know, formal technical logic. So how is it, in fact, that they are parsing propositions? What logic, in a broader sense, are they using? Essentially, that's the job that Braun has. People do study this, like professors of logic, philosophers of logic, think about epistemic valorizations and verificationisms and different ways that in a sort of uh, post-positivist way, people believe what they believe or justify their beliefs. Most of the time, that's not, you know, a strict if A, then B, if B, then C, therefore if A, then C. And so Braun has to break, you know, the Aristotelian rules of logic or what's called, you know, classical logic, the laws of classical logic in doing so. I guess a question I'd ask you guys and I'd ask our viewers is there are the five branches of philosophy ontology, epistemology, phenomenology, logic, and ethics. And almost no one, if you said, what is the goal of literature, would answer, number one, logic. (laughs) 
except for maybe me and Samuel Delaney. And so what's exciting for me about this book is um, he connects how we parse logic and how most people parse it illogically or not in an Aristotelian sense. For him, that is precisely the same way that people read stories or make meaning through some kind of grammar, a philosophical grammar, a logical grammar, the grammar of ordinary language. And the big linchpin here is the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who's, I think, pretty clearly the real-life inspiration for Ashima Slade, whose lectures we get at the end, and who is tangentially referenced throughout as the inaugurator of metalogics. You know, really briefly, Ludwig Wittgenstein's early work, um, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, is this attempt to put all of human meaning into propositions, and a finite number of them can explain how language works, how meaning works, the end. Revolutionary book comes out in the 20s. Then Wittgenstein spends many years basically walking back everything that he concluded in that book, saying, in fact, there was this original thing made me think language is like propositions. Then I thought language is like pictures. And now I think language is like games. The way meaning works is through games. And the rules of these games sometimes can be very technically, logically expressed. But most of the time, it's only through, as his final work is called, philosophical investigations of these rules that we can understand better how meaning is made in language. And this births, you know, the branch of analytic philosophy that goes down the road of ordinary language philosophy, you know, kind of thinking through how ordinary statements mean. It can only be done in kind of the way you think of, like, if in basketball somebody throws it over the backboard and it goes in, if the first time that happens... Does that count or does that not count? And we have to we have to look at these borderline examples to understand the rules. And that's where language as a series of games kind of becomes more important than an idea of language as a series of propositions. And Delaney is kind of using the game Vlet in this book and the idea of metalogics to see how can Braun better understand this game of meaning making that is, you know, the meaning of one's life, right? Or the meaning of what one does or one's relationships. That's really helpful, Carl. I found myself wondering, I really enjoyed these sections where they're playing this game, Vlet, but I did have some questions about, you know, what, what those passages are doing here. They take up, you know, not tons of space, but a, but a decent amount of space in the book. But hearing it explained that way is very helpful for me, especially since near the end, there's this really wonderful section, um, just a pa- sort of passing reference where Braun sees two other people playing chess, and um, she's very confused by it. She's like, "What's going on? This is such a dumb game. Like all the all the the pieces ha- like can only move in a certain a particular way, a certain way." And so retroactively, you think back about Vlet, and one of the great things about it is I don't know how in the world maybe Delaney himself has a sense of how it works <laughs> in total, but we as readers certainly don't. What we get are these like individual little skirmishes it seems like and he's always bringing in these new descriptions of like what's going on on the board and it's it's completely wild and really inventive and very fun but also clearly is is playing some role in the book in terms of 
that forwarding maybe life itself even as a game as a, a series of investigations playful investigations of what it is that we want out of life and certainly the way that we think about it it seems like part of what delaney is pointing us to with the chess game is you know so sure in his work on grammar talks about language as a chess board but wittgenstein's notion of language as a game and Delaney's notion of Vlet as a game that's metaphorical or whatever both seem to be aimed at more of like a Kelvin ball view of games that they are always developing and changing. Yeah, rules can melt away and new rules can come in because the game is ongoing and it's not a set square board where the pieces always move the same, but that people can invent new ways of moving and then we account for that and it gets swirled into society and it's always moving forward. Well, I think chess and Vlet are like one-to-one mappable, to use more logical terms, in the sense that the, the I think in both, like the rules are meant to be not breakable. But the point is, in this instance, like this kind of game is so, the possibilities for chess games or whatever, you know, is like whatever, billions of billions or something. Even though it's such a, it's like a game you can explain to a nine-year-old, that's kind of baffling and impressive aspect of the game and i think vled is supposed to be kind of like one order more complex than that the finite rules take perhaps you know years for humans to understand all of them but then the possibilities of gameplay are so rich from those rules that's kind of what's interesting about it but i do think the idea of you know language itself is it kind of an eternally evolving game is another kind of interesting question and i don't know where Sasur or Wittgenstein kind of ultimately come down on that. There's an element, too, in the book that Delaney has a certain interest in biological evolution and how that plays alongside of these evolutions of language and then also of social norms. There's a very interesting part uh, where Braun's talking to a doctor and the doctors suggests that people apparently used to think there were 48 chromosomes in the human. Really, there are 46, but the doctor suggests, actually, maybe what happened is that we just, like, when they started measuring them, there were 48, and they just shrunk down to 46, right? There's this sort of continual evolution, physical evolution, chromosomal evolution going on that then is matched by the malleability of human culture. And that seems to be an interest of Delaney as well, of physical and chromosomal modification mapping alongside of societal transformation, yeah, and this is um, a kind of old chestnut of philosophy of logic and philosophy of science, too, which is, you know, is the goal of science or the goal of a proposition predictability or verifiability? And it doesn't seem like we can always have both. Is the criterion of science the fact that once an event happens, the theory will verify it in each case, and thus we revise it empirically in a kind of Humean way? Or is the criterion of what counts as science something that predicts from event A to event B what will happen? And in general, we tend to think like what makes Einstein a genius or whatever is the predictability, the predictive capacity of his theorems. But that's not always how science progresses. And in fact, just an ability to successfully evaluate a very complex happening, a very complex event also passes for science. And, you know, with respect to Braun's life, it's the same. A lot of the book ends with all of these reflections on the relationship with the spike, which can be, you know, like a metaphor for like a dopamine spike or like 
a spike in you know the trajectory of one's if you graph your psychic life or your psychic events or your psychology and so is it even possible in this world where everyone can change most everything about themselves to have an evaluative scientific way of finding meaning in one's life and to map it on a history of the self in some way you mean like to say like well this is the point when i became x and uh, oh that relationship affected me in this way and that's why i'm this way today yeah and like is that going to be good enough for a person in like going back to a state of reasonable happiness is just the ability to look back on what happened and say now i understand exactly why that happened though it doesn't preclude you being able to predict what happens next i think that's kind of where you were you know this paradox of desire in some way that the book ends with that's interesting given that one of the distinctive features of Triton as compared especially to Earth and Mars in the book is that it's considered extremely gauche to talk about where you're from. You're not supposed to talk about where you come from and what and really what your history is in any sense. In large part, the book really consists in a series of, you know, Braun interacting with people and kind of realizing pretty quickly the limits of the knowledge of another person. Sam in particular is this figure who lives in his co-op at the beginning, but is never there because he has a whole other job and a whole other family unit somewhere else. And he spends so much time kind of wandering around. And this is just one of the places he lives in. So there's a sort of limited knowledge there of this other person. The same is even true to an extent with Lawrence, even though Lawrence is his best friend sort of stated, he doesn't seem to know much about him. It's really interesting that Bran is our main character because the novel really sours on Bran and I think really sides with the spike when she writes this letter saying basically like, you're a terrible person. You don't have the capacity to really care for anyone else. And because of that, like I want nothing else to do with you on any earth or moon in any future. But I think part of what you're talking about, Soren, is a really interesting way that this book begins with the idea of types. And again, in the Wittgensteinian sense, perhaps Wittgenstein's most famous philosophical argument is the argument against private language. The idea that anyone has some kind of pick any string of letters that isn't a real word in any language, and then you give some meaning to it. That will never be something only accessible to you. That meaning is sort of always already public, whatever word you have. And Delaney, I think, kind of interestingly toys with the idea of like a sort of fallacy of firsthand experience. There kind of is no firsthand experience. And when you think about, you know, politics, race, class, gender that are being put out there in this book, it's a very counterintuitive way to present a character that there's no sort of interiority to Braun that's inaccessible on some level is an idea that's that's put out there. And Braun continually wrestles with this by saying like, oh, I'm trying very hard to go against my type. I am this type, but yeah. therefore I will do something that's uncharacteristic of my type. And then Lawrence says, well, that just means that you're the type that does stuff that isn't characteristic of its type. There's no getting out of that publicity of your identity. I'll ask a question to my comrades who perhaps are not as commie in their comradeness as I am, being Karl Bookmarks. So Friedrich Jameson, you know, is a famous Marxist uh, literary critic, and he takes a special interest in this book, considers it one of the best books in the utopian genre. But he considers one of the biggest problems with the utopian genre. And, you know, he notes that in the 2020s or in the 2010s, the genre, you know, of utopia, E-U-T-O-P-I-A, is 
gone. You know, no one really reads or really responds well to like news from nowhere. You ask like 20 year olds to read that book where basically someone goes on a little journey through a perfect, like a more or less symbiotic, benevolent, almost perfect society. And we just start kind of looking around. You're kind of like on a Sunday drive through the plot. That kind of novel has gone by the wayside. It's dead. And now we have dystopias, right? Chaos. The whole social order is fragmenting or rapidly decaying. And someone, a a new hero from nowhere has to come and save it and repurpose it or retool it or something. And Jameson sort of says, you know, this is kind of what kills positive utopias, e-utopias, which he would still consider Trouble on Triton one of them. It's like the lack of narrative drive. People don't want to read them. They don't want to watch these kinds of stories because they're just not interesting. And so I guess I'd ask you, like, if you were interested in parts of this book, in spite of it being a positive utopia, why was that? I think the, one of the reasons I'm interested in this book is the same thing I'm interested in in News from Nowhere. News from Nowhere is really interesting, despite having no. I mean, I love it too, but that's a, I know. That's a minority. <laughs> no, you're <opinion>. totally right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. In News from Nowhere, William Morris talks a lot about language and a lot about how certain ways of thinking about exchange and value have totally fallen away and have fallen out of language and people can't use metaphors that they would normally use uh, for exchange because that actual practice has gone in addition to that in news from nowhere the concepts of sexual jealousy and anxiety are also kind of chipped away and obviously in delaney's book that's the case braun is maybe an outlier or definitely is an outlier in this world because for so many people not only is their way of talking about exchange changed and it's seen as retrograde you know in a lot of the mars and earth discussions of sex work but even the idea of sexual jealousy is passe um when they're talking about the spike is talking about putting on performances of older works of drama she says the audience just can't understand why these characters would be motivated by desire in this way that pulled me into the book and braun as a maybe complicated man capital c capital m character who we'd see as the center of like an hbo drama complicated man is interestingly picked apart and becomes a woman not out of the motivation of like i realized i was always uncomfortable as a man and i'm an i'm a woman and i'm gonna rectify whatever brought me to this body instead braun is like I don't like being this statistical anomaly. So I'm going to better my chances by becoming a woman because then I have got all these one in 50 dudes who have the same, I don't know, the same layout or whatever as me, psychological map. And then I'll be able to meet a partner because there will be those lonely men like me. And when I'm a woman, I, I can be one of the super rare ones who finds them much easier picking. And so that world of like gamesmanship that's still present in Braun is interesting considering that the rest of the world has sort of moved beyond that. If it hasn't, maybe it hasn't. Maybe there are other places where Delaney is pushing back. Where this book is maybe less communist than Morris in some ways is another big thing of the utopian genre, right, is like the family structure. The family unit is in some ways the unit of capitalism, right? And so in Morris, it's like we're all like evenly distributed in our whatever amorous capital that we have, right? And there's There's no jealousy to be had because there's no jealousy that like someone used a book before you or a car or something, right? Everything is like a exchange value brought to a sort of new sense of valuation, right? But Delaney's a little bit more humanist almost in saying like 
the thing that really drives a lot of meaningful life in this society is still coupling. And people, in fact, have all kinds of ways to increase their chances for meaningful coupling, even though family structures are totally different and living and working structures are totally different. What drives, you know, Braun to like do a lot of these things is like a a serious and somewhat devastating relationship with the spike. Soren, were you drawn in by uh, the utopian or heterotopian aspects of this book that aren't traditionally propelling a narrative? I found myself compelled most by a lot of the ephemera of the book, I guess. And I think that's actually maybe one interesting opportunity of utopias that is also then going to be a necessary limitation perhaps on their audience. I was thinking about this. I'm teaching this semester intro to fiction, and I was asking my students about what books they like to read, and three quarters of them listed as their favorite books some entry in what we might call the sort of YA dystopian genre. And what struck me thinking about it is that 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 genre I think is very appealing because it gives a very defined sense of here is what is evil or unjust. And here I am like putting myself in the position of the hero who is going to rectify this situation. And so it, it gives a very satisfying narrative arc. And you can't do that in a utopia. There aren't any dragons to slay in a utopia. And I do think that's in some ways limiting and, and, and perhaps frustrating, but it is also an opportunity to then be able to appreciate the richer textures that are going on around. Because there isn't that central driving narrative, there's not, I mean, I know we've been referring to Braun as the protagonist of this book, but I'm not even sure if that's really true. Certainly not a typical sympathetic protagonist, as Carl's rightly pointing out, Delaney by the end has very, um, I think, harsh things to, to write about Braun. But what we're given then is the opportunity to think about societal structures more broadly and even just these weird little differences between worlds and, and strange things. One of my favorite parts is when they go to Mongolia, they go to this fancy restaurant and you get to sit. You'd like pick your spot. I knew this would be your favorite you want part. Like, it's like earth, wind, air, and fire. Like you want a spot where you can see everything because on Triton, they have these sort of an artificial atmosphere, right? So the big thing when you go to earth is like experience real nature. And there's this whole weird like... You get in a carriage with these footmen and you like they take you up here and there's all this. It's like almost like it's like weird Civil War reenactors, but like twice. Yeah. Removed. Or like, <laughs> yeah, it, it almost reminded me of like, I don't know, like life in the court of Louis the 14th or something. Right. There's this like weird decadence going on despite the fact that Earth is like almost unpopulated at this point and then becomes even more unpopulated during the war. So there's just this opportunity to. It's a more leisurely way of exploring a world. And that's certainly true of news from nowhere as well. It can be frustrating at points. You feel that lack. You feel that lack of narrative drive. But if you allow yourself to sort of sink into it, there are a lot of pleasures to be found there. And I think Jameson would really dislike that kind of take on these kinds of utopias. And he, I think, rightly points out that it's kind of one of the deep ambiguities of this kind of take on a narrative form is like, I think we might call what you're describing like narrative wandering. There's a reason why this book was only 
reissued by a university press as because it's you know by a famous and amazing and criminally underread writer but the fact that it wanders so much you'll have a contemporary editor saying you know what's the plot let's cut this out let's cut that out a 40 page introductory vignette on a made-up game whose rules we don't really know cut that a bunch of parentheticals at the first 20 page cut those exactly (laughs) and jameson's point is kind of like does this kind of narrative wandering just reify the place of you in capitalism you know you the not the complicated man capital c capital but like the small man you're out there you little wage earner you aspire to like play a cool video game on your weekend or get a new gadget that it has some really cool stuff a really cool new car that you can explore on your your vacation you know like is that kind of all that braun is doing is vacationing and accumulating and is that all that this kind of narrative conditions us to do i think it's a good critique of the form i want to ask a question that soren and i were discussing earlier about the character's relation to the war that's going on between the the worlds and the moons because uh in a pulp science fiction novel you'd expect maybe that war to take center stage and that we'd be in this great galactic drama space opera oh yeah with lots of pathos and instead it's total totally background and discussed flippantly with a few exceptions and maybe even to a disturbing degree in in some ways that seems like a logical extension of the way we talk about war now and the way we you know from the gulf war which people famously talked about as being like a video game to the conflicts in afghanistan that we are still mired in and totally seem separate from most of our lives and uh, any news coming out of those war zones is I mean, you don't, you never see it, right? And so I wonder if that's part of what's going on or if there's other levels of abstraction that Delaney's pointing us to by having that war constantly in the background and yet emerging in the in the sloganeering messages and other places. I think I have two or three thoughts on that, but Soren, do you want to say something? I'm just, I, I want to echo that interest because I found that to be hard to read in terms of what Delaney's trying to do with it because it does... Sh- strike me reading it as very dis- very disturbing but then i wonder you know I, I do feel like maybe that's that's part of delaney's point is that it is there's a disturbingness to to the way the casualness with which it's treated but then what exactly is he trying to say about that because he's the one in charge of the narrative of the book he's the one who's sidelining it for the listeners at home who haven't read it maybe but who are interested in it there's a Five million people killed in one instant on a, in, during this war on one of the moons, right? On Io. And then... Most of the population of Earth is destroyed. Yeah. One of the decisive moments in the war is Earth is three quarters of the surface of the Earth or something like that are scorched. Maybe it's a smaller amount, but that results in huge, huge, huge genocide of Earthlings to the point that they sort of are discussing it later in the book. And they're like, oh, yeah, I heard the, some reports of like cannibalism in the Americas. Crazy, huh? And it's treated just like, all right, well, moving on. It's very important to the book, even though it seems in the margins. And again, the titular trouble could also be not just with Braun, but with the war, the intergalactic war. That's the trouble on Triton. And that's, again, one of the literal troubles in the beginning when the the gravity stabilizing force breaks for a split second. And the key figure here is Sam. Another thing is that very funny way, in a kind of cheeky way, it's a total dunk on space opera because there are literal space operas like neo-neo-wagnerian 17 hours space operas and they're actually really important to the characters these like 
literal operas in space in the future, as opposed to like Star Wars, where it, it is all about the war going on between the two sides. So it's kind of an, in some ways, probably in the 70s, a welcome departure from that kind of space opera, right? So I think that's kind of funny. And then another thing to say is that while it is backgrounded, it is it really comes to a fore in Bronn and Sam's trip to Earth. The whole point of it is about the war. And here we get a sense of how, like, if a more benevolent future is one where we can just play better, more complex games, the flip side of that is that we get into another pre-World War I kind of scenario where all of these intergalactic federations and their multiple intensely difficult to understand connections and treaties with each other can sort of flare up into intergalactic war in a second and we get this through like Bronn is tortured on earth and taken in with sam and they're both tortured the situation is so fragile that they can't even talk about it amongst themselves and they can't even relate to anyone else that they were tortured otherwise that will start a chain of events that will lead to the war happening and we don't even know at the end if they mitigated the war happening or what they did caused it to happen but the war happens and they barely escape earth before it's scorched and so i think that's the way that it kind of circles back and becomes almost central and again the point there is like you know today we have a similar thing right where like who knows if you or i or anyone in the world has like bought something that has been made by like a uyghur in like forced labor camp like we don't like no one can really know exactly how complex and convoluted like all of these international financial systems are and where your money is really going and that you know is like a trouble that we're in as well so i kind of like that take on the, the intergalactic war that comes out in the book i mean one of the darker parts of that i mean when you're talking about the torture on earth they they undergo and then can't really talk about and it's really a sort of convoluted capture and release torture that's going on right that's hard to understand why that happened to them in particular that that's akin to the spikes government funded theater performances that are directed at one single individual who is uh drugged by some subterfuge by like some touch of the skin or whatever they're given a psychedelic and one of the characters at some point is like oh sorry i forgot you know not everyone is is okay with like non-consensual drugging that there are these like hyper individualized entertainments and tortures and anything really it's just hyper individualized this world that you can select anything you can choose anything and if you want to you know put hot needles through a boy's nipples for your sexual pleasure or whatever i think is the example or freezing needles that all of that is available to you and that also like seems to be extremely like isolating for brawn and in a way that I really understand, of course, if there are only theater performances for one single person at a time and you have to be drugged to be involved in them, what happened to the communal experience hundreds of years ago of theater in this world? It's gone, or at least it's seen as less sophisticated with the space operas. I think you can already draw parallels between micro theater. You could call like the classic Ashton Kutcher micro theater punked uh mtv's punks <laughs> or you know the comedy central classic micro theater nathan for you where it is like a one person centered a team goes out in order to like 
manipulate reality for one person in order to create a huge effect scare tactic shows and punk shows or whatever and like imagine that punk was never broadcast to anyone it's just ashton kutcher creating a little illusion for justin timberlake in his life and terrifying him and then that's the end of it <laughs> and it's never broadcast that's the world we're in so i guess my final attempt to ask this question about you know what is left over in a utopian kind of narrative what ultimately is there for characters to do or suffer or realize i think the gist of the spike's letter to braun that says you know like this is why i want nothing more to do with you the spike kind of cites emotional laziness and it's interesting that in this society that's like rerouted so many of you know like the social the the macro social problems that we have now it's still a sort of call to virtue or self-examination this like super old socratic sense of moral progress or strength that's kind of at the heart of what i think the, the book's most positively portrayed character the spike is asking for and so i guess i ask you guys then you know did you think that that's a, a fair way to take something out of the book and is it therefore kind of more like a traditional novel or is it's placing that emphasis on emotional laziness in a new context still make it a different thing or maybe to put it slightly another way like like one of the deepest ironies of the book right is that Bron can't really metalogically parse his own like sexism and his own like inability to understand his relationships even though that's like his day job he can't really do it and in a world where one can just kind of like press buttons to change whatever one likes about oneself psychologically or genetically or physically the inability to have a button to press to cure one's emotional laziness what does that say about this future society and what is delaney trying to say about how central that is maybe to being a person that's an interesting question, Carl, insofar as there's a nice little irony, I think, that Delaney plays at the end in titling the last section of the book Tiresias Descending, which is, of course, a, a mythological reference to Tiresias, the blind seer in Greek mythology, who at one point in, in one of the legends, he's a man, he becomes a woman for seven years and then comes back and has like unified the sexes through his knowledge of both. Right, and has sort of gained the ultimate knowledge. And so there's that that sort of reference to it. But what strikes me as very interesting about Bronze sex change in the book is that you expect that she at the end will will have this sort of unifying knowledge and will maybe have gotten rid of her sexism. But it's actually just still there. It's like almost amplified once she's a woman. She still has these sort of these sort of denigrating views towards women and doesn't seem to really have woken up in that sense. And so I think Delaney is maybe pointing at the point you raised, having a, an unlimited array of options for switching anything you can imagine, any part of you that you can imagine, doesn't necessarily let you escape from some part of you that still remains. And, and that's maybe in the end what makes it have a little bit more of a hook or a bite than other utopias, right? Is that there is some unsolvable problem of humanity that remains even though the society seems to have solved all these other problems, these external problems, there is still that core internal problem that can't really be fixed. Braun is still an asshole. That hasn't changed. And how he became an asshole is complicated. It's embedded in his social history. 
the way he was brought up, whatever, right? It's how they talk, the doctor talks about how oh, women and men are on equal footing for the first time, you know, hundreds of, after hundreds of years in ways that they never were in the 20th or 21st centuries, but that the psychological effects of the way men and women were viewed and raised as infants carry on through the centuries in this book, even into today, into Bronze world and into Bronze mind. And yeah, I think that Delaney, like, like Soren was saying is, He's getting at the idea that, yeah, you can change a lot of things about yourself and your society, but those histories are there in ways that aren't, I mean, like the language game. There are ways that are that are embedded in the language and embedded in behaviors and that aren't easily extricated, even as things are progressing or changing. And that seems to be true of this individual as well. And I think like Delaney could have easily had a future Triton where there is the button to change anything about yourself. And then there's also the button to cure your emotional laziness. But he stops us, you know, maybe a few centuries before that button exists in order to say, this will remain, whether you're human or post-human, an important problem. And kind of one of the central problems of being a subject is that to be a good subject is to not make or not push the button that cures one's emotional stagnations right one spiritual you might say stagnations uh is there anything else we need to talk about tonight no i think that does it great thank you carl for for introducing us to this thank you very rich in many ways difficult but very rewarding book it's been wonderful that's our show for tonight thanks for tuning in we're going to come back next time with a very different pick although in some ways um, united to trouble on triton we're going to be discussing my favorite ancient Greek tragedy, which is the Bacchae by Euripides. We're going to be talking about what it's like when humans and gods come together. We're going to talk a little bit about some gender confusion and, and switchability as well, alongside of, of other topics. And so we will get to that next time. But until then, let's have Cat Keyboard play us out. Oh, those Russians.